Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Charming, indeed. That, or this, is David Eastwell. This is the C86 Show. And um, I've been working through my archives and come across a few interviews that I thought I'd um, sort of bring back, or at least, yes, reuse. This is one that I did with the author and... Um, somebody who's been in the music business and managed the biggest bands in the world, Danny Goldberg. He had just done the book called In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. So I've got that interview, which I'm just going to play without even bothering to edit it because it's a great bit of interview, a great bit of chat. So um, what I'll do to get the party rolling, I think we'll play a track and then the interview. This is going to be taken from the doors first album this is take it as it comes We're hyperventilating. That is The Doors with a track titled Take It As It Comes from their album from 1967. Did you see what I just did there, dear listener? Indeed, because this week's special guest is going to be the author and obviously somebody who's had a huge influence in music as he's managed and uh, some of the biggest bands in the world. And uh, yes, he brought out this book a few years ago, 2017 or 2016, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the hippie idea. So this is the interview with Danny and this is where I began by asking him about why this particular year and this was his answer. Danny, take it away. Well, I, I 
I've always had a romantic feeling about the late 1960s. I graduated from high school in 1967, and um, what happened is, as it got kind of to the end of 2015, I was having dinner with a literary agent friend of mine who said that she thought there would be the ability to publish or sell books about the 50th anniversary of 1968, which in America gets so much coverage in the news uh, channels and magazines because of the uh, assassinations that year of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and some of the protests. And I just, um, I just kind of freaked out thinking that the 50th anniversary of 1967 would go by. Yes. Uh, because to me, I felt that that was kind of the peak year of the balance between some of the hippie and spiritual idealism and the protest, and that things, you know, got darker after that, particularly, you know, sort of the hippie part of it, because once once some of these symbols, whether it was long hair or some of the language, like groovy and far out, or even the availability of LSD and some of the clothing became... Um, popularized by the mass media, they, they became exploited and co-opted and drained of meaning. And so there was an innocent sweetness that I remembered being a teenager that I, that I felt peaked in 67. So I just uh, became obsessed with kind of researching all of the exact details of, of what went on that year, not, not in the whole world, not even in all of America or the West, mm. but in the aspects of it that affected me as a kid, and uh, which mostly were things that were happening in London, New York, and California. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did the best I could in the next 10 or 11 months to, uh, to put a mosaic together of what was actually going on there and see if I could evoke the... Uh, the feeling that I remembered from that time and share it with people. Yes, because I, I always thought the, the, that particular year does work very well because you had in sort of January, which has always um, always boggled me really, you had the, the festival in San Francisco, the gathering of the tribes, didn't you? Which was, which are all, you know, in January in this country, you would not be wanting to put a festival on in a park. But then, <laughs> but then in the UK, about sort of the summertime, I think that might have been June, July, you had at the Alexandra Palace, the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, which again was sort of, I suppose, the UK's equivalent. And again, from people who I've met who went, it was a very lovely, creative and slightly innocent moment that, that everybody just felt, this is it. And, and I don't know if you've come across Joe Boyd, who did the... Um, produce I did. I, I interviewed Joe Boyd for the book, and he was extremely uh, helpful. And of course, he, he wrote a wonderful book. You know, <laughs> he was... Uh, the white bicycle. He was an American, I, you know, who had a sound man who had actually done sound for Bob Dylan when he went electric at yes, well, well, in Newport, and and somehow uh, in in search of being a record producer, moved moved to the UK, and uh, what was the name of his club? Was uh, UFO? I think he did the UFO club, but he did very early Pink Floyd. Then he did the Incredible String Band, and he did um, yeah, yeah. Nick Drake as well. And obviously, I remember him talking about being at the Alley Pally to do this fourteen-hour Technicolor Dream, which was a sort of benefit for the International Times. And and again, it, it was just as he sort of spoke about coming out and watching the sunrise and everyone being completely sort of loved up and probably a bit sort of stoned at the same time, realising that, you know, this 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 was kind of... He didn't realise this at the time, but this was the peak. After that, things change again. But 67 uh, seemed to have that particular moment where it all came together so beautifully. 
I know it was weird because um, it seemed like um, what happened that even though the circumstances were quite different in the UK than the US, I mean, in the US, we were obsessed with the Vietnam War because every male, you know, there were 20 million of us subject to the draft, and there were tremendous racial tensions in the US that were very different at that time than what was going on in the UK. But nonetheless, there were enormous similarities culturally about the wave of energy. And part of it, I do think, had to do with psychedelics. But part of, part of it, of course, had to do with the way music just connected the whole Western world. Um, and part of it is just kind of a mystery, why that moment in time created this sense of community that, that just couldn't last, apparently, but at least it gave some of us something to live up to. Well, it was interesting, because I also interviewed uh, Barry Miles, who did a lot of books, and he was all part of that underground scene in, in the, you know, London, the UK. And I, I asked him, you know, what happened, you know, at the end, you know, in the 70s. And he said, actually, we were just all really tired. You know, it almost like we'd all, we'd, we were quite, but, you know, they had such an intense period of three or four years that they just couldn't keep it going. And also things had soured as well. Well, you know, I think that... Um... I, I kind of thought sometimes that the metaphor of, of LSD for the whole um, community, in the sense that, that, you know, a lot of wise people have said that, you know, LSD doesn't actually give you spiritual enlightenment, but it gives you a glimpse of the possibility of it, mm. something to aspire to, and then you have to kind of come down and do the work of a lifetime to try to, uh, to, try to get there. And, and I think that there was a few million people who kind of went through that together where there was a glimpse of the way people could live together that came very, very quickly. Um, but, but the actual work of creating a community and values and ethics in, in a society, you know, takes, you know, I don't know how long have human beings been trying to get this right, thousands of years, and we're still not all that good at it. So I, I, I do think there was a combination of the distance from World War II relative prosperity um and uh and uh, there's just no the technology the way um uh stereos um and stereo recording technology allowed uh, allowed music to to be a deeper experience for people and uh, and there's no question that the widespread availability of psychedelics was was part of what what connected people and and it was not a sustainable um group of elements to build utopia, but but it did it did create a culture that's lasted for these decades, and and that that I I just think is worth uh, worth acknowledging uh, the good parts of it, and then there were very stupid parts of it as well. <laughs> well yes, well it was interesting because last year at the V&A there was a fantastic exhibition called "So You Want a Revolution," and again that featured an awful lot of material and also people from that period and and it was quite interesting because you you know there was an incredible wave of okay there was optimism there was the music there was art but there was also space travel and this kind of idea of of being able to just go further to uh, quote Ken Kesey on his famous bus yeah, you know yeah. so so I in a way I suppose and this was kind of in last summer you know everybody realized that the dream even though things had improved you know it was still going to be tricky politically and we didn't even know at that stage who was going to be the president of the united states so i suppose you know life is a bit more complex than we 
originally thought and all, all especially, <laughs> yeah. especially for those, especially for the people who were there, who must have been at the sort of San Francisco gathering of the tribes or the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, probably had no idea that it sort of took so many little kind of paths and the cul-de-sacs, which didn't particularly come out to be much, well, there was a lot of improvement, but there was also a lot of issues that are still not sorted. Every uh, wave of progress, um, it seems like then there's some backward uh, steps afterwards. I mean, after all, this is not the first time in human history where there was some sort of enlightenment. There was, you know, the so-called enlightenment of the 18th century, and there was the life of Buddha, the life of Jesus, you know. But actually putting together um, human society in a way that's fair and ethical and reasonable seems to you know, come up against these, you know, dark forces, you know, greed, fear, materialism. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle that's not going to be resolved in any one decade or one year or one lifetime. But, you know, I do think it's cool to, to just admire people who set an example and, and, uh, and then try to live up to it. Oh, absolutely. And your book, you know, you have sort of tried to pack a lot in without it being sort of too dense, because there has been a lot of books written on this particular subject, and sometimes it sort of yeah, goes yeah. too, it almost goes too far. And actually, your book does mirror the exhibition that was at the V&A quite a lot, because they also had a lot about the political period, what happened in France, what happened, you know, with people like Muhammad Ali, the riots in America, yeah, yeah. the Black Panthers as well. And I suppose, again, it's that thing that we're slightly, I think, because I wasn't part of, you know, I was about four at the time, but I suppose we're a bit bowled over by the, the, the speed of things, the festivals, the different characters and the different people, and the amount of things that people tried as well, because there was also the communities that started as well in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's always been, there's been a long history of people that try to experiment with different ways of living, communes and, uh, and uh, back to the land and uh, ecology. Uh, a different, uh, often spiritually oriented, but not uh, not not always. The thing that was interesting about the '60s to me was that those ideas, which were, you know, kind of pretty obscure, and and given to just certain neighborhoods or certain groups of people, collided with mass media because the the, the sort of the international media culture was really piecing itself together at that time. I mean, 1967 was the year of the first satellite television broadcast ever, uh, the first time an image was seen all over the world at the same time, or available all over the world at the same time. And, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the highlight of it was the Beatles debuted their song, All You Need Is Love, on that yes. broadcast. So, so I think that, that, that the ideas are not new. Again, these are ancient ideas and ancient struggles. But the, and, and there's an exceptionalism that some of us from the 60s sometimes exhibit that's not okay because we were not individually that exceptional. We were just a beneficiary of a moment when there was the ability for millions of people to think of these things together instead of hundreds of people. And that, that to me, is the inflection point of the 60s, is the, the intersection of these esoteric ideas with mass media. Yeah, and also, I mean, did you find it kind of interesting because because you too also tracked down quite a lot of the, those characters from that period, including people like Wavy Davy, Peter Coyote. I mean, did that did what did they sort of give you insights that you hadn't thought be, about before? 
Well, they're, they're inspiring to me. Look, a lot of people died. This was, this was a tough energy, and there were people who burned out. There were people who turned to bad drugs and died young. A lot of musicians like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, uh, and many, many others. Um, there were people who later became suicidal. Some of the radicals in America, like Abby Hoffman, what a great hero of mine, really became depressed and, and, and killed himself, uh, you know, in the 80s. But there were also people that figured out how to transcend the era and live righteous, beautiful lives. And certainly Peter Coyote is one of them. He's, he's uh, best known in the last few decades as an actor, but he, you know, he's been in E.T. and a number of other, other, other films. But, but he, was, he was part of a, a collective called The Diggers that were very mm. influential in Haight-Ashbury, uh, which was sort of the center of the counterculture in America in the 60s. And... Um, uh, you know, did develop drug problems, transcended them, became a Buddhist. Uh, Wavy Gravy, um, you know, was a comedian named Hugh Romney, a protege of the Beatniks, a little older than some of the the hippies, but but then a central um, kind of figure. Uh, he he uh, actually was given his name by B.B. King. He was lying on the stage at the Atlanta Pop Festival in 1969, <laughs> tripping when B.B. King stepped over him and looked down and said, Wavy Gravy, <laughs> and then he just took that name. And then at the Woodstock Festival, you know, he was sort of in charge, him and his commune, the Hog Farm, which still exists today, of, of dealing with people who were having bad uh, drug experiences and, and, and uh, getting food out to hundreds of thousands of people. And, and he... Uh, he he uh, put along with others put together an organization that's raised uh, millions of dollars to cure uh, a blindness in third world countries and understood that compassion and caring for other people was part of a spiritual vision, not only the inner search and 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 you know he's created a camp for children that goes on camp winter rainbow it's called these you know it's mid eighties in northern California still shining light same with Ramdas who's Yes, was uh, you know a protege who was a Harvard professor under the name at that time called Richard Alpert, uh, one of the popularizers of LSD. By the late sixties, finds that psychedelics are not getting him to the place he wants to be because, as he said, he kept coming down. Goes to India, meets a holy man there named Neem Karoli Baba. Wrote a book called Be Here Now, which huge influence on me and I think millions of people. He again done work with. Dying, uh, done, done work with the poor, uh, been a, a, of service in his 80s, living a righteous life. I think there are a number of people that are inspirational. Some people died a little younger. Obviously, Dr. King was assassinated. Uh, Allen Ginsberg died in his early 70s of cancer. But for all of the burnout and the tragic figures that just couldn't handle the attention they got and the and the uh, inner forces that were unleashed by the period, there were a number of people that really serve as role models. Some of them were artists. I think, you know, if you look at Bob Dylan's career, yes. you know, pretty admirable. So I, I tried to uh, balance the good stories with the bad ones. I think more of the bad stories tend to get attention. And there's a lot to uh, reject from the 60s. Certainly there were predators. There were uh, media co-option. There were people who were self-destructive, but I think the general notion of questioning materialism and questioning the idea that money and status are the sole definitions of a human being, uh, I think those questions were good questions. They're the questions that every major religion has asked. But 
something about the major religions were disappointing people at that time because they'd become too hierarchical and too many rules, and this created another way for people to tune into to non-materialistic spiritual values. That's the best part of it. Again, I, I, I know there are bad parts of it, and I try to be honest about both aspects of it, but I, um, I do feel that history has obscured some of the spirituality and the idealism at the expense of kind of the superficial symbols, and, and I tried by just getting into the weeds of the details to, to have a more balanced view of it. Well, I suppose what you were sort of saying there, which, or possibly vaguely saying, I suppose it, it was the, the 60s had almost like a bit of an abrupt end, and I suppose it was... There was a few things that happened. I suppose there was Altamont, but there was also the death of, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin. And, and I suppose that slightly was a reality check for an awful lot of people to possibly take well, stock of their I life. Well, I think there's no question that losing, and Brian Jones and others, you know, I think the, the deaths, the, the, you know, the sort of turn in drugs, just to be superficial about it, from sort of soft drugs and psychedelics like masculine and marijuana and LSD, to to a to a use of hard drugs like heroin and amphetamine was a very very bad development. Uh, you know there was a questioning of authority because authority made so many mistakes. They were wrong about the war in Vietnam and they were wrong about a lot of other things, sexual repression and so on. But they were quite right about saying that heroin and amphetamines are bad for you. Uh, and uh, those deaths were a big deal. And then in the United States, the the the, the murders of of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. I mean, the impact of that can't be overstated. These were the two great leaders that we had that could have been a link between this yearning for new values and an understanding of how the world worked. And they were murdered. You know, uh, so uh, I, I think that was a huge part of part of it as well. But I also think that the period was destined to come to an end. You're not going to get utopia or perfection in one decade or one generation. It was a flash of light. Uh, but but then, then, as I say, it takes, it takes many lifetimes to really turn that light into a better society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think in a way by, you know, bringing, you know, publishing books like this to give it a sort of an, another sort of look, especially with the 50th anniversary. It's not just about the 50, though that does work quite well. It's just also sort of taking bits that are really positive and sort of bringing them forward and and sort of saying, you know, it's a bit like the Steve Jobs thing, you know, just him, you know, him saying he took LSD and that was a huge part of his development well, in yeah, life. I mean, there's no question. Steve Jobs named his company Apple. I mean, that was a direct homage to the Beatles, obviously, and and he was uh, he went to India and searched to try to meet Ram Dass's guru. He didn't meet him because Nim Caroli had passed on, but 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 he, he, he clearly brought some of those values. I think the whole first stage of the internet uh is a number of books that tell this in far more detail than 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 mine was was deeply influenced by the uh the hippie culture. And the environmental movement I think was a direct outgrowth of the hippie culture and that turns out to be a pretty important movement if we're gonna have a planet to live on, you know as a, as, a, as a species, uh, you know, in the next century. Well, it is interesting because I think there's there's been a sort of another movement back kind of recently, which is the, the kind of hipster movement. And I think a lot of those kind of values are directly influenced by the 60s, this kind of returning a little bit more to sort of authenticity or sort of certainly back to the land or sort of back into community and the importance of sort of working with each other. 
is it to be a human being? We have enormous forces in society, in, you know, in the West, not just in the U.S. and the U.K., but in the Western world in general that are, that are, that are reinforcing the notion that everything is measurable in terms of money or numbers. And Lord knows numbers and money are an important part of functioning in a complicated modern society. But to make those things the sole determinant of value is uh, it creates an empty society. And uh, even Robert Kennedy, who, again, came from a very wealthy family and who, as far as I know, never took psychedelics and did, you know, you know, was, uh, had mixed feelings about some aspects of the counterculture, gave some very good speeches about, about how do you really judge the value of a society. And I think that, 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 that this is a question that was asked over, you know, William Blake asked this question, and Ralph Waldo Emerson asked this question, and Jesus asked this question. This is not a question that's unique to the 60s. But, again, the thing about the 60s was it took this questioning about the meaning of, of, of a life and of a society and what values and are there values other than profit and materialism and, and put it into the mass media and the mass conversation. And that's what I feel would be useful. I think Pope Francis is one of the most interesting voices in the mass culture today in terms of asking those questions, and he certainly isn't a rock and roller or a, or a stoner or a hipster, but I think that, that, that there are movements all over the world that try to address this, and, uh, you know, we, we develop inspiration from each other's experiences. Yes, absolutely. Well, look, Danny, I've got quite a quite a bit here actually. So, um, but I just to say, I really love the book because you know it's one of one of those decades and um, periods that I always find interesting. And actually, recently at the Design Museum in the the in London, they had a fantastic one about California and design. And again, it, you know, kind of tapped back into the sort of sixties counterculture as well as as a sort of one of the most important, you know you know, inspirations and places, really. And again, Steve Jobs sort of gets mentioned, but also an awful lot of the sort of the, the counterculture and the hippie movement. So there you Hello? go. Yes, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah, very good. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for your kind words and for letting me talk about my book and for, uh, you know, we're all in this together. So uh, let's uh, try to remember peace and love while we deal with the day-to-day -day, uh, issues of life. We, we, we will. Well, look, have a great day and thank you again ever so much for giving me your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Danny Goldberg talking about his book In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. You can do that via Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram. Check it out. Go to at C86show. It's all there and much, much more. And, and also all these shows have been podcasts, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, Podbean. Just check it out. It might just change your life. But I'll leave you with another track from that golden decade. And this is going to be Jimi Hendrix and the track Little Wing. Have a great week.